Hi, I'm Ken Sweeney. This is The Comfortable Spot. Welcome. Today my guest is broadcasting journalist Maeve McMahon. With almost 20 years experience, Maeve is currently one of the anchors at Euronews, a pan-European media broadcaster. I was interested in chatting with Maeve about a career which has mostly been based in Europe and about some of the highlights of her time in broadcasting journalism. So I hope you're sitting comfortably and happy to stay with us. Maeve, hi, how are you? Thanks for joining me on The Comfortable Spot. I'm great and I'm sitting very comfortably, a little bit tired, but delighted to be with you. That's the busy yeah. life in Brussels, eh? Very, very busy <laughs> life in Brussels. Always a different day. Never know what's coming up and yeah, it's it's fun. <laughs> did I pronounce your name properly? Of course you did, yeah. <laughs> I know, perfectly. I know, it's amazing. Like, cause we, down where I am, there's, there's new ways of pronouncing standard Irish names, so I, I always have to double check. <laughs> you know that yourself, when you go into classes in schools with ah. your daughter, it's not Cuiva anymore, it's Cuivine or something like that, so I'm kind of always weary at the end of the day. But I get called everything from Mayhap to Mev to Mav, and so many people have tripped up as well on air calling me all sorts of things. Even McMahon, yeah. they can't manage. Or I get called McMahon or Man or everything. But Maeve, when people actually realise that the BH is pronounced like, they're so delighted. They're like, wait, that's a really beautiful name. But first they're like, Mayhab. <laughs> and yeah, even people I've worked with for years, they still don't know how to pronounce my you name. You sound like you're an Egyptian princess or something, Mayhab, with that sort of name. That's the... <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, fun. I would be. Try that for aggressive party. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So come here, tell me, you've been doing journalism for a long, long time. And I've actually spotted you a few years ago when you were doing some stuff on YouTube in its infancy. Um, I think it was with, okay. with, a, with a Spanish channel. I could be wrong. Was I wrong? Oh, no, that's so embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe some of those clips are still on YouTube. They sure are. I went back to them oh, for a bit wow. of reference. And there they are yes. in the sunshine. Sometimes in the sunshine. Oh, of my goodness. Sometimes for a good giggle, I go back. Yeah, that's when I started out really in journalism was Spain. I was in my early 20s, living the life, enjoying myself, having a great time when I got this phone call from a production company because they needed a native English speaker to host these daily kind of podcasts. It was very innovative because mm -hmm. it was 2007. That's then, right, yeah. Before we all were like checking the news constantly on our smartphones. And it was a great idea by two geniuses, like two brilliant cameramen and editors who worked for the Valenciana TV um, back then. And they had this brilliant idea to do like a pocket TV for young people and they needed an English presenter. So off I went anyway. Didn't know what I where I was going, what was what was happening, but I ended up being pulled in there for three or four years and it was great. I made all my mistakes there, traveled the, across the continent, learned the A to Z of TV production, how to hold a camera, how to edit a bit, how to stand in front of a camera, all the things you need to know. So it was a small operation, which meant that you could get hands on on stuff that you probably wouldn't have been able to get access to if it had been a larger one. Oh my goodness, it was absolutely tiny. It was so small and it was in a tiny village. It wasn't even in the city of Valencia. It was like this obscure little village outside. So it was all very mysterious, but it was just these two men. They'd come up with a good idea and and they went for it. And um, and we created a bit of a European hub there. We had a Spanish journalist who's now a very well-known actress in, in Spain, Scano, one of my really good friends. And then we had a French guy as well. So every day we created this, this news, uh, just five minutes in front of a, we had a green screen behind us 
And it was actually a great format. And like, I think if something like that existed today, actually, it would be really useful. Yeah, it's funny because it reminded me slightly of a you're a trash, <laughs> but in a good way. Do you know what I mean? In a more professional way. Oh, rather yeah, because it was really funny yeah, and yeah. like, yeah, random. Yeah, yeah, but you, but, so random. yeah, but you still didn't have the tackiness of you're a trash, if you know what I mean. It was it was on it was on point. Thank you. Yeah, I don't think I would have signed <laughs> no, up no. if it was quite euro trash. I think I would have like exited very fast. <laughs> I suppose for <laughs> I suppose for our younger listeners and people who are not probably familiar with uh, British and Irish TV, Euro Trash was this kind of half hour program that was on British TV. It had um John Paul I can't think of the second name, it's not the you had Gaut- John Paul Gaultier and I can't remember the other presenter, but it was kind of tacky looking at kind of the, the funniest things in Europe in this kind of fast paced uh, program. So that, that sort of kind of reminded me of. But as I said, it was more positive. Now, come here, I have to ask you, was that your first? You said that that was your first experience in journalism. So had you an eye on journalism before that? Was that where you were thinking of going? Oh, I always wanted to be a journalist since I was about 15 or 16. It was definitely something I wanted to do. So when I was doing, I'm from Navin and I was in Loretto, Navin. And when I was on transition year for my work experience, I I was like, well, I was kind of between law and journalism. I was attracted to both of those fields. So I did work experience in the four courts in Dublin and I did work experience in the weekender in Navin, the newspaper. And both were were thrilling and interesting. But journalism, I just got hooked. I just loved it. I just loved everything about what was happening around me. I was always interested in the news. We always had like the TV on, the evening news. We all sat around to watch it the radio, the newspapers. I just, I just loved it. I was just, uh, and then I was clear. And from that age then from 16, I just set that goal. I was like, I want to be a journalist. That's what I want to do. And in fact, I remember when my granddad passed away and the local priest was in our house, he said, what do you want to do when you're a grown up? And I was like, I want to be a journalist. I'd love to read the news. And he just laughed at me. <laughs> yeah. He didn't take me seriously <laughs> at all. And I was like, okay, I'm going to prove you wrong and I'm going to do what I want to do. But even in school, like my English teachers were like, Oh, I don't know about that. You know, you could keep dreaming, but like, yeah, not a lot of encouragement there. Yeah, but I think they were probably coming from a, you know, a very ignorant point of view because you were younger. So you were watching what was happening in Europe with Sky News and CNN was coming into Europe at the same time. And you had even smaller channels like Super Channel, which were kind of being run by NBC, I think it was. So it was becoming much more global in a sense that there was access for Irish journalists to go abroad and take jobs there. So it wasn't really the RTE and UTV and BBC anymore. Absolutely. But in my teens, I mean, RTE was my major influence. Right. I mean, we just had RTE on, obviously BBC as well sometimes. But for me, kind of RTE was was the was the, was the the go-to TV. Like we sat down every night to watch it. And then Radio 1, of course, it was just with us everywhere. And we didn't really have the internet when I was a teenager. So you didn't really have access to the amazing amount of information we have now. But obviously, as I got a little bit older, and then when I think I was like 22, 23, I had my eye on Sky News Ireland because do you remember there was a Sky News Ireland for a very short period of time. And I remember like sending off my CV and I think I was I was going to be heading there. But then I ended up going going to Brussels instead. Did you decide to stay abroad after the Spanish project or was that just kind of did something lead to that? Like so like that was the stage I was between London Mm. and Brussels and um, my brother's in London. He's an architect there. So that was attractive. And obviously Sky News Ireland. I was like, wow, like I loved Sky News, I loved the style. I loved the way it was told. It was felt very exciting. But then I think it was getting delayed or something didn't work out. So I just jumped on a on a plane to Brussels. I was just like, okay, it's time for a change. The project I was working on in Spain for the three years was starting to come to an end, a bitter end where they kind of just had no more money. So they were struggling for survival. And so I was like, okay, time to leave this beautiful country, the east coast of Spain, the sunny beach and head for Brussels. And I had like 
terrible impressions of Brussels being very gray, very dull, very boring. So when I showed up, I was really pleasantly surprised because I just fell in love with the speed compared to Spain. Spain was much slower, like everyone takes their time. It was like two hour lunches. I'm a more fast paced person. I like working. I like working with dynamic people. I like being in it with people who are very passionate. So I felt like in Brussels, I found that. And also I love kind of, I love languages. I love the whole multilingual vibe. I love mixing with people from all of, all across the, the globe. And I remember when I moved to Brussels, I was specifically not looking for Irish people. I was like, I'm not joining the GA club. I'm not going to the Irish pubs. I want to integrate. I want to find Belgian friends. I want to speak French. But I ended up just, it's like a global village here. So you meet people from all over and you just get sucked in. I don't know. It's, it's. It's kind of the a really interesting place to be. It's not just the EU quarter. There's a whole city here and there's lots happening. And obviously the job opportunities in this town are, are huge. Mm -hmm. And I was going to ask you about living in Belgium itself. I mean, you know, is it similar to Ireland in the way we have, say, claim to have a good healthcare system, but I'm wondering about childcare and stuff like that. How does it work over there? Is it is it is a good place in terms of that sort of thing if you wanted to really put your roots in? Oh, it's it's great. I mean, I've had the pleasure of having two babies here in Belgium and been treated like a princess. I, It was almost like checking into a hotel, giving birth here. My husband was allowed to stay with me for three nights. We were given full board all on my on my just my health insurance. Um, it's I was treated so well. Postnatal care as well was absolutely brilliant. No, it was really, really well looked after. It was an amazing experience and not perhaps as good as some of my friends back in Ireland who a lot didn't even share their birthing stories, which is such a shame because I think birthing stories are just fascinating. In fact, I could do a whole podcast. <laughs> There's an idea. On birth and like, yeah, I'm just I'm just fascinated by the whole thing, the whole process. And here in Brussels, it was it was a wonderful, wonderful process. I was very lucky. I had two great births, treated very well. And childcare as well is very affordable. It's based on a means test here. So um, you pay between for public crashes, you pay perhaps between 200 a month or 700 a month max. And then the kids go to school from the age of two and a half. So I have a two and a half year old now and she's already in school. So well, preschool, you know, so um, and if I was a single mom working from seven in the morning to six in the evening, I could actually leave her there because there's a guarderie, which means this there's kind of supervised um, play. I mean, I wouldn't do that to my little two year old or the four year old because obviously they're small and they need a bit more stimulation but but the option is there so i think it's a it is a good place to have a family and obviously there's lots of parks and there's lots of different groups you can check in with as well international groups um to find out what's going on for kids and it's there's a lot of free things happening that's festivals so yeah that's no, the other thing i find about brussels i've been there quite a bit the thing i find about it is, is it's a small city so you know you don't find yourself being overawed by the whole sheer size of it because you know you go somewhere like paris or london the size of these cities can be very unnerving Absolutely. Yeah. Brussels is it's, it's a small city and I bike everywhere. We have this amazing long tail bike. I think they're getting very popular now in Dublin. Are, well. yeah. I've seen a few hours. We have a bike for three and I just love it. A bike for three because you can stick two at the back and potentially one on the front as well. Nice. But we have the two on the back and it's electric and it's like a car. It's like my wings. It gets me around here so, so fast. And Brussels is improving. Brussels is essentially a city of cars. It was designed like that for the last 40 or 50 years. And there's a lot of incentives because it's you get a, it's, there's a lot of taxes here. It's a, Employers are highly taxed. They often gave incentives in the last couple of decades of company cars. So it is chucked. I mean, it's, it's the pollution is bad. There's a lot of problems like that. 
but it's getting better. And we have a mobility minister now, Elke van den Brandt from the Green Party, who is trying to make the city better for, for bikers. But yeah, as you can imagine, lots of tensions between cyclists and uh, motorists. Exactly. Whether we like it or not, there's always a thing about gender balance and key positions there. And I'm just wondering about in Europe, or particularly in Brussels, women in the media there, is there a balance? And is it possible, say, for example, to do what you do as in and as raising a family at the same time? Do you have issues with that where you are? Because even still, you you know, you still see a lot of it happening here in Ireland. And there's a lot of well-known people in the media talk about the difficulties to have being a journalist, a female journalist in Ireland, even though they may be writing for one of the leading media newspapers or they might be on TV. And I'm just wondering your experiences in Brussels in particular, working for one of the largest media platforms. How does that run for you? I mean, it's obviously very challenging. It's challenging being a woman in the media. It's challenging. Your 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 challenges are huge. I mean, it's it's so image based. I yeah. mean, I've had viewers write to me to make comments on your hair, comments on your outfits, comments on your lipstick. And you're like, let's talk about the actual substance of the topic yeah. here. But people are really, really obsessed with that. It's it's amazing. There's a lot of pressure, and um, and you're judged. Of course, you're judged. On every on a lot about how you look, um, it's 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 amazing. It's it's challenging. So you just have to be like quite strong and quite like not take anything too seriously. Just take everything with a pinch of salt and try and organize yourself and your life in advance so that you have your outfits. Because Euronews traditionally, when it set up, was not an image based TV in the sense that they never had anchors, which meant when they put anchors on four years ago, they didn't bring then a whole team of like makeup artists and you know, wardrobe in. So we basically do the makeup, we do the hair, we do the, we do the whole shebang, the clothes. So kind of, you kind of have to really think ahead. And like, I found myself in situations where I was interviewing um, the, the Secretary of State from the United States, Anthony Blinken at NATO. And I dropped my kids to school in the lashing rain, wearing kind of boots, you know, welly boots. And then I end up in the interview in the welly boots. Okay. And my boss and we had a heart attack. She was <laughs> like, I was like, oh no, I didn't realize I'd be in full vision for the interview. But like, there's just so many things that you need to think about. And it's when you don't have that team behind you, it can be sometimes just, you know, you drop a ball every now and again and that's normal. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And for me as well, it's important to get female voices to interview women. Absolutely. That's so important for me. And there's a platform here called Brussels Binders, which I always use to try and get women, especially in sectors like defence. Like there's just very few women there. It's hard to find them, but they are there, but they're shyer. Like just last night, I was moderating an event called the Women in Europe Awards which kind of showcases brilliant women, brilliant European women in in power, in politics and, and young women as well. And like I was bringing jury members up on stage just to have a little chat as we handed out the awards and they were so shy. They were almost overwhelmed. They were like, oh, we're not used to being on stage, you know, after two years of COVID. And, and I was like, come on, you know, like women need to be more confident as well. And women are so amazing and, and so intelligent and juggling so many things at once. And they have to be proud of that and, and, and not be afraid to speak out and stuff. I'm a big advocate. I think as well, we could probably do more male advocates for women in media. It tends to be something I find is that guys tend to back away from it and say, oh, I'd rather not comment at all than comment. And I think that's the wrong way to be. We need men to be advocates for women in media. And I think we need men to stand up for that and say, look, we're all the same. You know, we all do the same job. We all can interview people. Just it doesn't matter whether you're male, female, whatever. And it, I, I find that that's something that's probably lacking in some of the colleagues I know. And I kind of give them a kick in the ass and I say to them, look, you, know, you have to stand up for that. You know, you can't just turn around and say, oh, well, that's someone else's to comment on because this is what's happening. Some men are kind of backing away from it. I don't know whether it's fear or we're laziness. And they're just saying, oh, I'd rather not comment on it at all. 
you know, and even because like we do, yeah. even with transgender issues, you'd have guys saying mm, it's not really for me to comment on and i think that's the wrong way to go i don't know how you feel about that that is the absolute wrong way to go i mean maybe they care less i mean but at the end of the day women are less um competition for them because look at me i'm a woman there was two times i had to step off my job which i love i love my job and i remember my first maternity leave i was really reluctant to go and have my baby because i was like i love my job like I'm going to have to adapt now to being home with a little baby. And that's that's not easy either. That's tough. Like, it's really hard to be alone as well with a baby. Yeah. And you're missing out on all the opportunities. You're, you've got major FOMO. Of course, you can't be sent to all the different places around Europe to cover that story because you have responsibilities. And also you can be labeled, oh, you know, she's a she's a mom now. She She won't be able to do that story. But you can. I mean, I have an amazing husband, which is great as well. He's working half time now so that I can work. 150%. So like I'm kind of now working a lot, even though I did go half time after having my second child because I needed that time just to kind of get back into the swing of it. But like, yeah, we need men supporting women. And yeah, it needs to be needs to be more equal. And it's clearly not yet. Mm, it is weird because, you know, the way that if you have to think about that, you're not doing the right thing. You're not thinking properly. It should be a case of saying who gets there based on their experience and their, you know, they're being qualified to do the job. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether you're wearing whatever yeah. you're wearing or where you come from, really. Hopefully, I mean, as as European media becomes more entangled, the, you know, Irish media, for example, can learn, UK media can learn from, from continental ways of doing things, which is kind of my next question. I'm curious about Euronews and your experience because you've you've worked with France 24 as well, I believe. You had some experience with them. Yes, I was a correspondent for France 24 yeah. for five, year, five or six years. Yes. So I'm just curious about the whole thing, working in Europe and working for the European uh, media channels. Mm. What do you think, how, you know, the way they do things, for example, in France 24 and the way they do things in Euronews, are they all very individual or is there a continental style? Well, is there a continental style? I mean... I think perhaps there, well, I mean, I'm sure that, I mean, in Orsi, for example, it's probably mostly Irish reporters. I mean, there's probably more diversity now in the last mm, few years. Not much. But not much. Okay, well, but France 24 and, and Euronews, it's it's just like a global hub. I mean, Euronews is, it's they've 17 language editions. So you can imagine it's it's very multilingual, very multicultural, very, everyone's coming from different backgrounds. We have even... Um, we have um, a digital version in Farsi and Arabic and Turkish as well. It's doing very, 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 very well in Turkey because there's hardly any free media in Turkey at the moment. Um, so that brings an amazing dimension. It brings a really inter interesting perspective to how we report the news. It's also very difficult, though, because we're not a national broadcaster. So we're, we're not just reporting to one set of people. So obviously, as a reporter, I'm constantly thinking of my viewers. They're just my they're my people. I'm like, this is why I'm doing the job for them to make sure that they know what's going on and they feel part of it. And I'm asking the questions that they want to be asked. But it's hard sometimes for this kind of a media because you, you're wondering, like, it's just so global, our audience, you know, it's somebody perhaps in a hotel or like, you know, somebody in their sitting room and anywhere in the world. And we, we try and give more perhaps just global perspective and less perhaps focused on one member state. Because obviously here, before we have an EU summit, there's lots of briefings. So each journal, each set of journalists, they get briefed by um, their government or by representatives from their government. And the Italians hold, hold, hold together, the Spanish are all together, the Irish are all together. But as Euronews or France Van Gaat's reporter, you're kind of everywhere. So you kind of keep a little ear 
in what's going on in all the member states, all the different countries, and then try to paint that picture then for your viewers. I spoke to um, Tony Connolly about this as well, because Tony is the European correspondent for RTE. And, um, you know, for him, it's, it's a hard job because he's doing a lot of it himself. You know, he doesn't have the big team say that would be there in, in BBC and so on. And he was saying like, oh, yeah. you know, there used to be two, now there's one. You'd see Tony in Brussels one week and then the next week he'd be in Berlin and the next week he's in uh, Kiev. And, uh, you know, it's it's a yeah. tough enough job. So um, it must be good to have the kind of the infrastructure of Euronews being so close to where you're based. Does that help a little bit? Yes. I mean, what, but I mean, newsrooms are slimming down. I mean, the resources are not there the way they were 10, 20 years ago. So Tony's right. Tony is doing absolutely everything on his own. And in Euronews, in fact, when I joined a couple of years ago, I was trained on how to use a Mojo kit. So mobile journalism. So we were handed an iPhone kit, lots of beautiful different types of microphones, um, a lovely backpack, and then off we set. So like, we, we've we been broadcasting live with those iPhone kits and I've actually done a couple of stories as well with those iPhone kits, even in Ireland. In fact, I did a couple of stories along the border and um, on the climate stuff. I've done a few stories, chat to farmers in Ireland. Love it. I love reporting in Ireland because people are so chatty. They're brilliant. Um, just with my iPhone. And it's it's it was great. Like, I love working with the iPhone, but I don't think you can report on your own with an iPhone. I think safety in numbers, you should always have a team it's always much better to have a team with you and it's just nicer to work in a team and you're better as two. like being just alone, kind of lone wolf reporter. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's not great, but like we have a reporter, Annelise Borges. She's, she's my idol. She's like our international reporter. She's been all over the world with her iPhone and she even got nominated this year for an Emmy award. So she's really doing so well. Obviously she has fixers on the ground. Um, but like she has done so much just with that tiny iPhone and like you don't intimidate people. So like, you know, she even sat down with the Taliban wow. last summer, last August, and used, she had two or three iPhones. I mean, it's just, it's really amazing what you can do. Yeah, and actually just now that you mentioned it, I'm just wondering about the fixers. Um, there's always been these issues, and I spoke to Tina Lee about this, who is, um, she works in Berlin uh, for one of my episodes of this podcast, and we spoke about the importance of fixers. And she was kind of lamenting the fact that when it, she's originally from the United States and she said that when she was you know looking at American style of doing fixers they just helicopter in fixers from other countries whereas she's found that European countries tend to be much more clever with fixers and that they find them who are based in the particular area they're in absolutely yeah because your fixers your, your fixers need to be your eyes and ears on the ground where you are and your fixers can do all sorts of tasks very mundane tasks to very interesting tasks like often the fixers are, are doing so much of the reporting as well and maybe not getting the credit um, but yeah, no, it's, I remember like I've seen friends like American friends as well who've come in here and worked as fixers and stuff and they're, they're kind of lost because yeah, they mightn't have the local languages. They don't even know where to get the best burger in town or the best frites. I mean, so yeah, like fixers should definitely be local. It's weird though, isn't it? That they kind of do that. Cause I haven't just heard that from Tina. I've spoken to a number of American journalists and they seem to, that seems to be the norm in that they don't really like working with people too close to the action. Well, I mean, for big networks like CNN, NBC, when there's a breaking story, regardless of where it is in the world, they just turn on the tap, the money tap. Like there's just, there's no budget issue. They send their big wigs, they send their crews, they send dozens and dozens and dozens of people. And I remember a couple of years ago here in Brussels in 2016, when the terrorist attacks happened, like CNN took over the whole uh, city centre. They booked all the rooms of the main hotel in the city centre. They flew in everyone. A friend of mine, a makeup artist, she was doing their makeup for the week and she said she just couldn't believe it. There were so many people. 
One person was holding the coffee for the reporter. The other was feeding the notes. The other was putting the text in the prompter. The other was like <laughs> bringing the snacks. There was obviously the camera guy, the sound guy, like astonishing. And to think then some of us are there just with our mojo quit equipment. We're like, huh. And yeah, wow. the thing is, I mean, the difference, it's not very much when you think about it, because at the end of the day, it's all about reporting. And I know um, my wife was actually scheduled to go to Brussels the following day after the attack. And so we were watching TV quite you know we were there for the whole 24 hours before on and we had Euronews on and CNN didn't even come into the game because you know it's Europe we felt that it was the best people to know would be people in Europe and we had we had Euronews on um and the, the coverage that day was really really good I presume that was you were on the ground that day were you so I was back then that was 2016 so I was March 2016 I was working for France 24 and um and they had obviously just come out of the attacks in Paris in November do you remember the Vatican attacks in the Stade de France and they covered that story very, very well. I remember in France 24 because they obviously had all their reporters that were normally based in the newsroom. They sent them all around the city and they they covered that really well. And on the day of the attacks in Brussels as well, I was here and we covered that, yeah, 24-7, all, all, all sides of it and, and all angles of it and, and Euronews as well covering, yeah, because you, as somebody viewing from Ireland, you wanted to get more of a nearer perspective instead of just watching CNN parachute in, yeah, with a totally different perspective and a more dramatic, perhaps, take to the story. I think where, where we benefited from both the French attacks and Brussels attacks, watching uh, France 24 and Euronews, was that there was less repetitive um, reporting. Americans tend to do that. You know, they, they rotate the same news every hour or so. Whereas with Euronews, I found, and France 24, both of those instances, as you said, they were not just focusing on the areas. They were moving beyond the areas. They were, you know, trying to see whether there was going to be any story outside of the story. And I think that's really a key difference for me when I'm looking at the differences between European and American media. They tend to, American media tends to grab a story stick on it for the whole 20 hours and then hopefully the next day it's going to rotate into something new whereas I always think Euronews and France 24 and BBC to a lesser extent and RTE but I think again that's more um, logistical problems rather than that but when a situation happens in France as you said France 24 were the people to, to look at because they had so many people there that they were able to expand the story. Of course and they had the const context Can they had they knew they know the city like the back of their hand they they visit these places. They're familiar with these places. They know their way around the, around the city. They understand French people, French culture. And it was the same for the attacks here. I know Brussels like the back of my hand. I know where places like Molenbeek are. I know where the EU quarter is. You can, you can contextualize your story very well for your viewers. You have the background, you have the context, you have the political side of things as well. And it's so important that your viewers have that information and have that context and have that honest reporting and not just kind of a mundane repetition of like, you know, the big, the big lines, the big headlines, you know, people, people don't need news today. They need analysis. They need to know why and they need to hear, hear all the different views. Do you think that Euronews has the capacity to expand? I mean, is there something new on the road for the, for the channel that are the media platform? Because it's more than just a TV channel, obvious. So do you see if, do you see something new, the next thing around, the next big thing around the corner for Euronews? Well, that's a very exciting question, Ken, that you're asking me, because obviously Euronews, like all media, like, are, you know, it's, it's tricky, especially COVID was tricky. It was a tricky time. And, you know, advertising revenue was plummeting with people not traveling anymore. So it's been it's been a tricky time and it's been a tricky time for for all media, especially broadcast and people's concentration spans are shortening, you know, two minute package. We put so much work into a two minute package. You know, you might head off for the whole day, do a shoot, then you like you transcribe, you de-rush, you put your speech together 
and like two minutes and you're like, people need to sit down and have that concentration span, but they're not. So obviously Euronews, like all medias, are trying to think of ways to to get people, to keep people. And they're rolling towards a more digital approach. So the idea would be next year when they celebrate their 30th birthday. Wow. Um, 30 years. Re- yeah, 30 I years. I can't believe yeah. that. So you can celebrate with Shows us. how old I am then. <laughs> so the idea is to embrace kind of a new, a new visual image and a new digital first. The TVs are not going anywhere. The TVs will stay, um, but we will be do going more digital, more multimedia platforms, um, kind of podcasts, photos, social media, lots of different ways, verticals as well. Um, but as I said, the TV is not going anywhere. And we've just launched a new TV show actually in Brussels. I'm not sure if you've seen it. It's called Bruxelles Je T'aime with a question mark. So Brussels, I love you or Brussels, my love. Um, so we are going to broadcast that show in four languages and we're, it's currently been broadcasted just in English. But we tra- we subtitled it then into seven languages. So that would be kind of our flagship weekly show where we sit down and talk to a couple of people from the Brussels bubble. But the show is not for the Brussels bubble. The show is to kind of catch people all across Europe and just kind of engage them on different stories and and get them to hear about the kind of ins and outs and and of the policies going on here as well and not just the big noisy politics. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean... You know, it's it was on shaky ground for a few years back. You know, I was I was really worried about it because I I love the idea of Europe having. You're a fan. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I I will. I am. I actually am. I I'm not afraid to admit it. I've been long, you know, advocating the use of a channel like this. And when it was slipping up a little bit, and I was going, ah, oh, come on, hold on there. So you know, and yeah, it yeah. held on. And then of course we had France 24 and also DW News being set up then as well. And I said, you know, that's great because they they wouldn't have been you know, they wouldn't have evolved had there not been Euronews. So, you know, Euronews really paved the way for the type of media that we have now in Europe, which is, as you said, it's very, it's very open. There's a lot of different uh, branches to the trees and, you know, they all complement each other. There's still, there's a style in DW News, there's a style in uh, France 24 and there's a style in Euronews as well, which is, in my opinion, much more expansive. So, you know, it's great to hear that you guys have, you know, new ideas on on the road and it's good to see that because um, at the end of the day, you know, (laughs) we don't want to be relying just on one or two. It's it's good to have, you know, four or five different different platforms, but Mm. uh, I'm still glad that Euronews is still around there. I have to ask you a little bit of a big question, right? Um, this mm-hmm. is one now. I mean, answer me as best you can, so don't worry about it. At uh, the future of European journalism, in terms of say where it's going, uh, are you worried about the way that it's going a little bit? Is there are we ending up having a situation like what we have in politics, where it's become very divided? You know, there's one left, there's one right. Do you find some of the media channels are stepping into that, or are they still trying to maintain that central place or that you know foot on the fence? Well, I mean, it's hard to be very positive about the future of European journalism or the future of journalism, because obviously with the recession around the corner as well in Europe, and as we talked about earlier, just the money's just not there anymore. Like there's so much money today in advertising and marketing and spin and this, that and the other, but like not an in independent journalism. Like if you take an uh, example, for example, EU Observer, are you familiar with Yes, EU absolutely. Observer? Yeah, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant platform. Brilliant journalism. Yeah. That's an example of brilliant European journalism. Yeah. It was set up by Elizabeth Kirk, a Danish woman. They are fantastic journalists. But when Politico, there's only about six of them, but when Politico came to Brussels, um, they kind of wiped them off the market there. I mean, your EU Observer is still around. They're still doing their best and they're collaborating, doing a lot of different investigative stories. 
but they just can't keep up. Yeah, it happened to me. And it's a shame. We had um, we I had a channel, I had a, ch- a news platform as well. We have a news platform. It used to be called Europe United, and it was doing really well. And we we were non profit too. And we found that just over the last say, particularly with COVID, it hit us hard in terms of being able to recruit writers. Um, we would have been publishing five or six articles, you know, every two weeks or so, and doing a podcast and everything. But you know, nowadays, as you say, it's very difficult even to recruit people to write for you, and and funding for us was a massive problem after COVID you know and we found that we had to shorten we we, um, we changed the name it's now the European Network in attempt to try and be a bit more broader but it's still very very difficult Maeve you know as you say yeah you have to like medias have to be very creative now about how to how to get money and how to keep keep people in those jobs and yeah I feel like it's such a privilege now to, to actually get to work as a journalist and be get a front row seat to everything that's happening and access to everyone and and have that honour to tell that story. You know, it's such an honour, but I, I don't know if I'll still be doing this in 10, 15, 20 years. Maybe then I'll be more like a freelancer and I'll provide my services. I'll provide different stories in different formats because journalism obviously will still be there. We need journalists. Just the way we tell the story perhaps will keep evolving and evolving. But yeah, let's see. What about American platforms coming into Europe. I know we have CNN here, right? But we don't have MSNBC and Fox News is not really making any kind of a, an impact. Um, do you do you think that they're still eye, have eyes on Europe or is, is that just somewhere they're not really that interested in? Well, did you know that NBC actually joined up with Euronews a few years ago? I did, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they did join, they did come in for a while and that's when I was actually recruited by Deborah Turnes, who's the current head of BBC. She's now in London and she kind of shook things up and got people on air and changed things around. So she brought she brought that kind of American style to Euronews. And there was big plans then for NBC to set up a massive channel in London. So, yeah, you're very well informed. Um, but that all fell apart. Then it fell through because of COVID. COVID came and just killed their story because they were going to launch on the climate ticket. They they were going to come in as a the channel that you would turn to for all the stories related to climate change. But that didn't get off the ground. So they so they so they just yeah, they left. It was gone. It was it was dead. It was a bit of a shame because I mean they had, you know, the likes of Rachel Meadow and all. And I thought that um their programs could could work in Europe as well as a kind of supplement to maybe um, you know, local local produced media. Of course. And they had the money, they had the resources. So like, you know, it's if if you watch TV, like I love watching CNN sometimes, especially their stories from Ukraine, because they're just so well produced. They're so well done. You can tell. And as as someone who works in TV, I watch every frame, every edit, every graphic. I'm I'm obsessed. I just love every part of the visual storytelling. So like I really enjoy to watch something that you know that's a teamwork. That's a work of art. That's a piece of journalism that was put together with a team that were really well respected and well paid for their work. And and you know, that's what you need. Journalism needs that. It needs that input, that those resources. Some of the quality of their podcasts have been amazing. Uh, you know, you can really tell when they do a story on, like, say, say Rachel Maddow recently did one on Ultra, which is about the um, the rise of uh, Nazism in America during the 1940s. And their research into the podcast was just amazing. And also, you know, amazing. you could, amazing. she she went, she, I love Rachel, she's really brilliant. She pays credit to the local journalist that she speaks to on every show. So if she's speaking to somebody from, Wisconsin, you know, she has somebody on from a regional newspaper there. And, you know, that's really, really great. I think that's brilliant the way she works. But when it came to the podcast, um, you know, production and, you know, basically giving the runoff who was involved. I mean, I think she spent about three minutes just naming everybody who was involved. It's like a hundred people into this program. And the quality of it was just, (laughs) the quality was, as you said, it was just super. 
I mean, it was right at the top yeah. of the Apple ratings, but I knew it would be because it was such a good, well-researched um, story that not many people would know about. And it's like fascinating when you hear about these things that happened and like what we're living in again mm. in America, you know, um, just the the the, uh, the idea of podcasting and, you know, social media and all that. How do you feel about that? Do you like doing podcasts? Are you are you big on social media? Oh, I would love to be big on social media, uh, but I'm not. I just don't have time. I'm just so busy actually working. I'm a working journalist. Like I'm, I have so much to do in my day. Like every day I have a massive to-do list. And maybe the bottom of that list could be I'll post something here on Instagram or whatever. But I actually just don't get around to it. I just, I just do not prioritize it. I haven't even updated my website for about five years. <laughs> my LinkedIn as well, pathetic, even though I did look at a, a tutorial the other day. There was, well, I looked at it for about five minutes about how journalists can use LinkedIn because obviously LinkedIn is a very positive space uh, compared to other platforms, perhaps like Twitter. But social media, like I definitely want to use it more. Like I definitely want to do more Instagram reels and videos. And I'll be going to Davos in January uh, for Euronews and we'll be doing a lot of big interviews and stuff there. So I think it'd be lovely to show people behind the scenes of Davos. Like there's just so many interesting things that you could show people. But obviously, yeah, you need time to like to do that because you're just kind of running around all day doing 100 things. And um, that you just don't have time. But I think, I mean, I'm excited about social media and and, and telling stories like more dig creating digital content as well. I think it's, it's a great way to reach wider audiences than we perhaps do just on the TV. Yeah, you're correct. Because like I know a few journalists who would be involved in TV or radio. They just don't have the time to be on Twitter. Whereas I also know a few people who are writing mostly and they've loads of time on Twitter because it, yeah. wo it works hand in hand. It, like, you know, they have yeah. their laptop or whatever open and they're doing yeah. their articles, but they're also got, you know, Twitter to their left, you know, so they can just easily yeah. pop it in. Whereas people like you, I, anybody I know it's in your game, they never have time to even tie their shoelaces, literally, you know, I know. and I, <laughs> I can understand that. It's when they retire, then they never shut up. <laughs> <laughs> that's when they start writing books yeah exactly and stuff, yeah. Like Dan Rather for example my god he's never off Twitter since he gave being on television I know but that just shows yeah, yeah. you it just shows you how busy he was I mean he just didn't have time yeah, yeah. it's a good complaint though I'm but sure I have, <laughs> yeah but I've kind of a love-hate relationship with Twitter I find like Twitter is a very negative place it's like a miserable Monday morning like everyone's just ranting and raving and venting their frustrations and you really get I really kind of absorb that negativity I don't like it yeah. but obviously it's a great place to get informed really fast and also politicians are using it. So if I'm not there, I won't get the information. So I need to be there. But here in Brussels, well, we have about 100 WhatsApp groups from spokespeople, which are so exhausting because then you're mixing your personal life as well with your professional life and all these WhatsApps. And I just love calling people, just having a chat, you know, and that's the Irish in us. <laughs> it is. Yes. It? But nowadays it's everyone's like sending me an email to set up like a meeting on Microsoft or on whatever. I'm just like, just call me, just spontaneously pick up the phone and call me so much nicer it's like or you have your friend saying is it okay texting you and saying is it okay if i call you it's like oh, yeah just call me <laughs> just yeah just go phone. for it like yeah it's yeah. true but some people don't like being called like i have friends if i can't reach them i'll call like five times and then they'll be like mave like what happened Back off. I'm like, i just want to talk to you <laughs> pick up the goddamn name. phone you know <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I'm a journalist. I need to keep calling till I get what that's I need. Exactly like, I mean, that's exactly it. That's it. you got to break the news. That's the way I work. <laughs> <laughs> Give me the headline. Uh, it's funny because you're talking about Twitter. I mean, I, I, I have the podcast on Twitter and I have my own profile on Twitter. And some of my friends call me Jekyll and Hyde 
because they see me on Twitter <laughs> and I'm this evil, you know, foul-mouthed animal. And then when I get to talk to them on the podcast or I interview them, they're kind of going, uh, you're not exactly how I expected you to be at all. <laughs> so, so you have a whole different yeah, Twitter Yeah, Je- definitely a Jekyll and Hyde. But I find, it, I find him less on Twitter now and more on Mastodon. I don't know whether you're on that yet, but um, I find Mastodon, no, it's really working. Yeah. I think it's really working. There's a lot of journalists on it, um, you know, mm. and it, I, I actually... I would have recruited I would have got basically bar yourself and one other person actually my entire series I've recruited for this the next series series three of this podcast from Mastodon so you know it's wow. yeah yeah it's really hey. it's been it's much easier to neg- to ne- you know to network with people there they seem to be more open whereas in Twitter I think everybody's suspicious you know so yeah. that's, <laughs> the, that's the problem you know but um yeah I mean what do you yeah. think of Twitter do you think it has a future mm, yes I mean I think it does have a tr- uh, future because it's so established um, but I think Elon Musk has made a lot of enemies as well. He's also fired the whole Brussels office. He's lost a very a lot of very smart people that he's actually going to need. So probably not a wise decision. Um, so I don't think it'll disappear overnight. But I think, yeah, everyone's moving on to Mastodon. I think like people, people can drop things as well. Fast. Oh, definitely. Do you remember Bebo? Absolutely. Back in the day, there was like one million Irish people on Bebo and then a week later, it was just gone, and then it was Facebook. Yeah, it's even Facebook yeah, now. I mean, I, I, I would, be, I've been on Facebook since it started. Like, it was a very small, tiny thing when I first joined it, and I don't, I don't touch Facebook. I can go two weeks without looking at Facebook. Yeah, me neither. You know, so I think that Same. says a lot. Yeah. And actually, if you look at Facebook, the demographic hasn't, it hasn't gotten younger. It's just aged. That's the problem. Yes. I think you. I know it's all people you know from school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. bad for Facebook because we don't, you know, people 50, 50 plus, we don't buy the type of stuff that they're trying to sell on their ads. Do you like the way Instagram now has gone very video focused because they're trying to keep up with TikTok? Or do you miss the way it was just used to be just photos? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, my first kind of port of call would be Pinterest at the first time for pictures and images. Um, I used to use that a lot, but then I found that that was just becoming more fashion orientated, which is fine. Uh, but Or interior design. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I mean, when <laughs> we were doing, we were looking for ideas for rooms, that's where I go. But um, yeah, so yeah. I don't I don't know. I mean, I use Instagram really for my daughter she has a podcast for reading books she reviews books on her podcast so um she's nine so she kind of just getting introduced to instagram now but she's already at me about tiktok and i'm she's nine yeah she's nine yeah and she has a podcast she has yes she has a podcast (laughs) she's been she's episode 40 episode 40 she's done 40 episodes so um yeah so she it's we find instagram really works for us with the books then because you know it's a vision it's a very it's a very handy visual thing you know if you've got the actual book we're reviewing there and you know being kids books they're very colorful and so on so you can introduce a lot so yeah i mean it's okay I think I would use Instagram any day before I'd use Facebook. We find we get no response for either my podcast or for um, Lydia's podcast when it comes to Facebook. They're just not the type of people that listen to podcasts anymore. So, so yeah, I think, I think as you say, I think it's diverging. You know, you're going to have core groups and then, you know, there won't be much intermixing. But uh, it'll be interesting mm. to see how Twitter goes. I mean, as you said, he's he's bitten off more than he can chew. And I think the other thing about Musk is that people are really beginning to see that he's not the kind of super big wig Tony Stark that people made him out to be. Yeah. And that could be bad yeah. for him, you know, because it's in terms of future investment, people would say, oh, he's not the kind of guy we thought he might be. So Exactly, and they won't want to be associated with that. Yeah, absolutely. Maeve, look, it's brilliant having you here. But before I let you go, can I ask you a question that I always ask everybody on the podcast? Yeah. So what are you reading, watching or listening to at the moment? Well, I mean, I am obsessed with reading. I love reading, Great. but the only time I get to read is when I'm on my holidays. Right. I just don't have time. I can't actually read a whole book. The last book I read was on my on my summer holidays. So now it's all about podcasts. Now it's all about podcasts. So I'm listening to, I love the newscast. 
um, Adam Fleming from the BBC. He's a he's a former he used to be here as a reporter, so I knew him very well. He's a great guy, and I love his newscast every his night. Style is really nice. cast, yeah, his style is really nice. Yeah, style. It's great. Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. And I love the Farron Desk by Monaco. I haven't heard that one. Monaco Twenty Four. Oh, I love it. I've been listening to it for years. It's very. It's kind of global news. Um, foreign affairs, which I love. It's just fascinating. And um, he always gets really interesting guests on. So I just love it. Any TV, um, Netflix, anything like that? I don't have time. Gosh, I sound so pathetic. <laughs> I sound so pathetic. I had COVID twice. Yeah. And during COVID, I was able to watch stuff on Netflix. But apart from that tiny uh, date with my bed and with Netflix, that's, I, that's yeah, no, it's just too busy. Like being a working mum on the go, on the trot. I also do a lot of moderating of events and stuff. So like it's 24 seven and then like getting on the ground playing with the kiddos. It's just, there's no time. Yeah. yeah. Did, I have to ask you before I let you go. Did you watch, the, did you manage to see the newsroom when that was out a couple of Of course. So what's, what was your opinion <laughs> yes. on that? Because that was you basically, you know, this is your role. This yeah. is, so how did that look to you? Oh, I'm trying to remember it. Like, I mean, it was yeah, a, a back little bit you. like that, but it was American. So like, you know, obviously it's so different to a European newsroom. Yeah. We talked about the differences. I mean, it's very different being in an American newsroom. Like in, if I was in an American u- newsroom, I would have to like have your, your teeth whitened. I would have to like have my waist. Like there's so many different conditions that would be put on me as a woman to be Terrible. in an American newsroom. You know, the pressure is huge. So like, and the, the stuff going on behind the scenes in the, in the newsroom, like I don't think it's quite as dramatic um, <laughs> and quite as gossipy perhaps in, in our newsroom. It's a little bit more civilized perhaps but yeah it was fun it was fun to watch yeah i mean aaron sorkin and it was very kind of liberal wasn't it It was very kind of you know Mm. trying to get the message across which is fine you know that's whatever you're into but uh you know i think it wasn't as clear-cut as as it was meant to be um but you know it was fun to watch and i thought it was a very brave thing to do it didn't last very long but that was probably because it was the nature of that beast you know people didn't want it too much going around uh mave how can people get in touch with you how where can they find you online you're on twitter i presume Yes, I am on Twitter. As I said, I'm not great on Twitter. Um, Maeve McMahon, yeah, at Twitter is the handle. I'm also on Instagram, Maeve McMahon. Where do we get you on Euronews? On Euronews, well, you can watch the brand new weekly show that I'm hosting called Brussels Je Thème with a question mark. And that's on every weekend. And yeah. A couple of repeats, I presume, as well on Euronews. Yes, yeah, we repeat it as well because, yeah, to fill, fill the beast, as they say. And so people can catch it because they're not all just watching TV 24 hours like yourself and myself. (laughs) So people have other things to do. (laughs) So, yeah, that's what's happening now. And next year we might be launching a podcast at Euronews. And as I said, we'll be in Davos. And then February I'm in I'm in Paris doing an event at the Louis Vuitton. So there's already lots of things happening next year. And so the agenda is already getting busy and yeah, but it's it's great. It's exciting. And I'm feeling very honoured and privileged to still do this job and do something I love. Thanks so much, Maeve, for taking the time to talk to me today. And thanks to everybody out there for listening. We'll talk again real soon. Take care, y'all. Bye-bye.